what you're seeing as we speak is that there are efforts to use through legislation the capacity to overturn a presidential election rather than the use of violence that failed on January 6th. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. One year ago, supporters of former President Donald Trump, who falsely claimed that the 2020 presidential election had been stolen, mounted a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to stop Congress's formal certification of Joe Biden as president. Representative Peter Welch, who's been Vermont's lone congressman since 2007, was in the House chamber waiting to vote. He was ordered to lay on the floor by Capitol Police, who stood over him and his colleagues with guns drawn as rioters rampaged outside the chamber. Welch heard a gunshot. He thought he might die. I spoke with Peter Welch about the events of January 6, 2021, and about his political future. Congressman Peter Welch, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. What do you call what happened? We hear insurrection, riot, coup. What do you call it? Well, it was an attempt to overthrow the election uh, of President Joseph Biden. Uh, that's an insurrection. Um, it, it, it was the, the stunning thing is that it was the first time in our history where there was a organized effort to deny the peaceful transfer of power to the person elected by the people of this country. And secondly, it was the first time in our country where in order to achieve that goal of stopping the peaceful transfer of power, violence was used as a means of political persuasion. So it was absolutely an effort to overthrow the election and it came within a whisker of happening. I mean, the only thing that held it back was a couple of the institutions held. Uh, One was Vice President Pence, who uh, under enormous pressure, not just from Trump, uh, from uh, then President Trump, uh, but from the mob outside uh, where I was and saw the makeshift gallows with the signs, hang Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence under immense pressure uh, did not do the president's bidding. And of course the Georgia uh, secretary of state uh, who was asked to quote find 10,000 votes did not do that for president uh, then president Trump, but the mob uh, used violence. I mean, it was absolutely searing. Uh, as you know, I was in the Capitol. I was in the House chamber at the time. But before that, I lived very close to the Supreme Court. I took a walk early in the day uh, along the mall, down past the Capitol, past the Washington Monument, uh, to the Lincoln Memorial, and then back by the White House. And it was a scene that was not alarming to me at the moment, because there were lots of folks there. They had the Trump paraphernalia on. They had the signs. There were a lot of very angry, violent, epithetic epithets in the signs. But it was a lot of people out there. And never in a million years could I have imagined they'd actually breach the Capitol, which later happened. Uh, but there was something that was very alarming to me. When I walked past the ellipse, which is where the president uh, was later going to address the crowd and famously told them to you know, get tough and go down there. Uh, It was a a scene of intense white hot anger. Uh, And people were hurling epithets uh, at everybody in the Capitol. F those people was the chant that many were uh, uh, chanting. And what was so alarming to me was that I understood uh, 
people were totally loyal to Trump. But the and I knew they were angry angry at Nancy Pelosi and, and maybe Mike Pence. But that indiscriminate white hot anger at everybody who was in the Capitol, and that included cafeteria workers, it included uh, the custodial staff, as well as obviously police officers. And these are folks who work incredibly hard. Many of them have to live an hour or more away from the Capitol because the cost of housing in Washington is so high. And these are people just doing their work. And that anger was so indiscriminate that it was scary to me to see uh, people that were so uh, intensely angry about what was going on that they could make abstract the lives of these fellow uh, citizens and fellow human beings. Uh, so that was really, really alarming to me. But of course, go ahead. So you then venture back into the Capitol to do your job, which on January 6th, remind us what Congress was convening to do and where you were physically. Well, of course, Congress, there are, our job on January 6th is just a ceremonial job to certify that the votes uh, from uh, the state of Vermont and every other state, as presented uh, through the Secretary of State, uh, uh, are, are accurate. And uh, we certify the election as pro forma. We're not counting the votes. So those are the elector votes. And it's really never been a, a, a contest other than 1876. And of course, the Stop the Steal movement was based on the argument for which there was no evidence that there was fraud in some of these states. And many of the Trump-aligned uh, members of Congress and Senate uh, were going to vote against certifying Joe Biden as the duly elected president of the United States. And it was appalling to me that anybody uh, who was serving in Congress would vote in that way uh, where there was no evidence whatsoever. Because obviously all of us, whether we're Republicans or Democrats, we don't decide who the president is. That's not our job. That's the right and the exclusive right of the people of this country. So to be imposing ourselves into this uh, was crossing a line and breaching a norm uh, that we that's very, very dangerous. Uh, also, it was so bizarre when I'd be talking to some of my colleagues. I remember talking to one from Pennsylvania where he's arguing that it was fraudulent on the ballot. And I said, wait a minute, weren't you on the same ballot? Didn't they count you and elect you? And of course, the answer to that is yes. But that selective thinking uh, allowed him, in what he asserted was in good conscience, to claim that that vote, that ballot was counted correctly as to getting him elected to Congress, but it was counted incorrectly as to getting uh, Joe Biden elected to be president. So uh, uh, it, it was, you know, in, in retrospect, the, 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 uh, the, the, the fact that the members of Congress did that, I think, uh, was a real breach of the norms that all of us have to accept that it's the voters who decide, not the members of Congress who decide who our president is. Well, the, the question you ask, of course, is the one that is so mind boggling, because I think there, there was one of your colleagues did introduce a bill to deny uh, seating all of the Republican uh, representatives who had voted against um, accepting the electors, but had also been elected that day, um, right. which seemed to me to make uh, a, a reasonable point. Um, 
what's fair for one is fair for all. So when the riot reaches the doors of the chamber of the house, where were you and where did you go? I was in the gallery. Um, if you remember, that was the, I was going to say the height of COVID, but of course, we're now in a new version of COVID. and It's really intense now. But because of that, in the physical distancing, some members were on the floor. Uh, some members were in the gallery. Uh, and some members were in their offices um, as the debate was going on. But I was in the gallery with a number of other members of Congress and some of the press up there. And um, the, the, you know, I could not, I, I couldn't believe that there was any possibility that anybody in the Capitol was going to be uh, threatened. I have always thought it was like the safest place in the world. So the notion that this was going to be attacked never occurred to me, even though I had done this two-hour walk on the mall and seen what was white hot rage among the, pro, uh, at that point, protesters. Um, but what happened uh, in the Capitol was suddenly we saw the security people for the speaker and the majority leader uh, and the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, they are there in the back of the chamber and by that iconic door that opens when the president is announced to enter and address uh, the Congress and the American people in the State of the Union. The security people came rushing down and just almost lifted up Steny Hoyer and he was leaving. I mean, he was startled and he was just taken out. And then uh, the, the speaker's uh, staff did the same thing, our security staff. And she was gone so quickly that she didn't even have a chance to take her cell phone with her. And uh, all of us who were there on the floor and in the gallery were totally baffled and bewildered. And then uh, things just sat there with no explanation of what was going on. And Jim McGovern, uh, the chair of the rules committee, <laughs> tech and the uh, uh, took, took the speaker's position on the podium and uh, started the process of continuing the process of certification. And then suddenly one of the Capitol Police officers interrupted the proceedings. And this has never happened in my 15 years in Congress. And interrupted the proceedings and said, the Capitol has been breached. There's, and said, as I recall, that there was tear gas fire. And of course, all of us who were in the gallery and in the chamber had no clue as to what was being seen on television with the mob uh, climbing up the ramparts uh, and starting to batter down the doors. But we paused and then there was another announcement uh, that the Capitol had been breached and that we were told uh, to lie down on the floor uh, to get out gas masks that are available under the seats and uh, to put those on. Gas and, masks are routinely located under the seats in the house? They are. They are. They are. And uh, Did you uh, know that before are. that day? I didn't know it. Uh, I mean, I, I, I did not know that. So uh, we were told to get these gas masks on, get on the floor. And this is when uh, everyone was pretty nervous, but again, we had no knowledge of what was going on. In a, in a certain point, though, we started hearing banging on the doors, the battering on the doors, and we saw the security folks starting to just do makeshift uh, uh, um, obstructions. Uh, heavy bookcases were put over those iconic doors uh, that were later attempted to be uh, battered down. And what I remember almost more, more than anything else 
uh, all my colleagues on the floor, uh, all of us really worried. People starting to make phone calls. Dan Kildee talks about that call uh, because I think a lot of us had in mind uh, the visuals of a lot of those other demonstrations around the country where folks in camo and with the AK-47s uh, were very much in attendance. Uh, so there was a fear uh, that, that, that this, this was going to end violently. Uh, but what I remember almost more than anything else is I was on the floor and standing above me was a young Capitol Police officer. And he's probably in his early 30s. And he has gone up, as they all did. And they were watching left and right on all of the doors. There's so many doors where entry can be made in the gallery. And intently looking, but he had a look on his face. I can't say it was apprehensive because he was going to do his job. But his life would change if he had to pull that trigger. And they, it just would have been the idea that people would put this young man in this position where he had to make that choice that would be so, so horrible for him to have to do that. But I knew that he would do it if that's what he had to do. He was standing basically over me uh, and uh, Congresswoman Wild, and he was going to do what he had to do to do his job and protect the members who were there. But that a mob would put a person, a good person, another fellow citizen in that position uh, was really appalling to me uh, and is with me uh, to this day. But do we you, were, on, go ahead. Do you have PTSD from that experience? You know, I don't. A lot of my colleagues do. And I think uh, and we've got a group, there's the gallery group. A lot of us are on a, an email chain. And I was scared and we all were. Uh, but I have, um, I mean, my PTSD now, if anything, is the reality that our democracy is very much imperiled. This was not a one-off event. But I found that in talking to lots of my colleagues, I had some colleagues who had uh, traumatic experiences before that really brought back those memories. Uh, I found colleagues who had young children were really terrified because they had to live with this uh, real possibility that they wouldn't be there to take care of their kids. Uh, men and women. Um, so we all kind of reacted to it in different ways. Uh, but the the fact that uh, I've had my colleagues that I can interact with has been, I think, quite helpful. Uh, but I am, I, 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 it is clear, uh, you know, I was there when the shot was fired. I was there when uh, they were- You were in the, the speaker's gallery there? I was in the gallery and we were literally about 20 feet away because the shot was fired on the second floor. We were on the third floor. So we didn't see it, but we heard it and it was unmistakable. And uh, that was just the floor below us. <clears throat> but the, those of us who were in the gallery were the last to get out because you couldn't just go out the door that went from the exit, from the uh, floor of the, uh, the chamber through the speaker's lobby and then to the safe spot uh, that was uh, was across the street. You had to go all the way around this building or this uh, gallery where the seats were close together and there were railings that you had, they were uh, just a little too high to go over easily, just a little too low to go under easily. And uh, with all respect to my colleagues, uh, members of Congress are not the most athletic up, uh, group of people <laughs> in the country. Um, so it was a, a, actually a long process to get out and we'd go 20 feet and the officers would hear some banging on the door. They would tell us uh, we had to get back down on the floor and uh, 
then they'd have us get up and go another 20 or 30 feet and have us get back down on the floor. So it was a very, very slow process <clears throat> during which we had Capitol Police officers with their guns out uh, looking at what was happening and whether any of the doors would be breached. Did you think that you were going to get hurt or even killed that day? Uh, all of us thought that at some point. I mean, there was no question when we heard the gun go off and we saw that the mob was trying to break the doors down, that uh, this could include violence. So it, the thought definitely occurred to every single person who was there, including the Capitol Police officers. And in fact, five uh, officers died as a result of what happened that day. And of course, uh, the woman who uh, was trying to climb in through the door to the speaker's lobby was shot and killed as well. So people died as a result of the activities that day. What do you, there has been a lot of talk about the complicity of certain Republican Congress members in aiding or abetting the rioters. What do you understand about that now? And do you believe that there was complicity? Well, there's definitely been support for the Stop the Steal movement. I mean, the fact is that even after this violence, 147 of my colleagues voted to not certify Joe Biden as the president of the United States. And that is really, really shocking. And you had some members who uh, clearly uh, were participating in meetings and discussions. Uh, and the January 6th committee, the whole point of the January 6th committee is to move this beyond the question you asked and speculation as answer into what facts can we get through the emails, through the text chains. And and what we're seeing from the January 6th Commission is there was a lot of uh, planning by a lot of people about trying to use that date to overturn the election. And it's not clear how much and who was involved from Congress, but it's clear a number of my colleagues in Congress were very supportive of the effort to overturn the election. Now, does that amount so that I, I'm going to wait for the January 6th Commission before I can have a conclusion on who specifically did what? The saying goes that a failed coup is a rehearsal for a successful one. Do you believe that's what's happening? Yes, I do. It's definitely happening. And I must say, that's what, when you asked me about PTSD, that's what concerns me the most. You know, my reaction was that the violence uh, that was so publicly recorded would have caused a reaction on the part of the American people to reject anybody who was associated with that violence and the attack on the Capitol, the attack in the death of Capitol Police officers. And I thought it was such a terrible stain that it would people would repudiate it. But what has happened, number, starting with 147 of my colleagues, instead of repudiating the violence, and the effort that that violence was attempting to achieve, the rejection of the election of the president, they voted not to certify the election. And that's a, that's a shattering of the democratic norm of the peaceful transfer of power. And secondly, what you're seeing right now is in Trump aligned legislatures across the country, they're passing laws that are doing two things. One is making it much tougher for people to vote. But number two, and very, very ominously, taking away the authority of independent commissions to certify the vote, 
whether it's a secretary of state or an electoral commission, it has always been nonpartisan. And transferring that authority to the legislature itself so that that elected legislature, the partisan legislature, can decide who it is they want to be the uh, president of the United States. So there, what you're seeing as we speak is that there are efforts to use through legislation the capacity to overturn a presidential election rather than the use of violence that failed on January 6th. So yes, it's very much a work in progress. And yet Congress has been unable to do anything to stop this by passing federal election protection laws. That's right. We passed it in the House, as you know. And, you know, there's three things that uh, uh, that are pending in the Senate that we passed in the House. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore protections in many of the Southern districts. Number two, uh, the For the People Act, uh, which would guarantee that there were election integrity procedures about voting and about making certain that nonpartisan uh, determinations were made about the counting of the vote as opposed to partisan electoral bodies. And then third, really something that's long overdue and it's to shore up the institutional authority of the House of Representatives as a counterweight to the executive. And the fact is that uh, the Article I responsibilities of Congress as a co-equal branch of government are withering. And you're seeing that even with the Trump years, the complete repudiation of, of uh, oversight by the executive, uh, thumbing his nose at any subpoena or congressional effort to get uh, information that's relevant to uh, the, 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 the oversight responsibility of, of the Congress. Those are really critical. They're pending in the Senate and the filibuster standing between us and getting those passed. I, I have to say, as somebody... Um who watched the Watergate hearings back in the day, you know, the the word subpoena used to send a shudder through lawmakers or anyone who received one because it kind of meant the game was up, you know, that right. all the shucking and jiving was over and you now had to show up and defend or whatever, testify. Now that has become like a, a joke, like a punchline. Well, I mean, they're all no, defied. That is exactly right. And that is a, a, a development that's, that imperils democracy. The whole constitutional framework is separate but equal branches of government and that all three have co-equal status. And what you're seeing now is an imperial executive that is beyond acting as though it's beyond any oversight uh, and accountability to the legislative branch, which is the branch elected by all of the people. And that's a very ominous development uh, for uh, for our democracy. And it's why this legislation to restore subpoena power, the authority to hold the executive accountable, to give authority to Congress. And that could be a Republican or a Democratic led Congress, but where the Congress itself has to be asserting itself as an equal branch of government. That is That is vital to the uh, restoration of democratic rule. Let's talk um, a shift for a moment here to uh, the, the the daily work that you do, some of the legislation. The Build Back Better bill, that's the so-called soft infrastructure bill. It includes free community college, universal pre-K, expanded Medicare coverage, paid family and medical leave, climate initiatives. Senator Sanders had called on House progressives to vote against 
this uh, bill being separated from the so-called hard infrastructure bill, roads and bridges. And he said it would, quote, end all leverage if you did that. You disagreed and voted uh, for the, uh, the bills separately. And now President Biden is unable to persuade uh, Senators Manchin and Cinema, as well as all the Republicans, to pass this Build Back Better bill. Was Senator Sanders right? Uh, do you have second thoughts about having voted to separate these? I don't. I mean, the reality is this is coming down to Joe Manchin. And would Joe Manchin have buckled because we held back on infrastructure or not? I mean, the fact is none of us really know. The reality here is that the importance of Build Back Better is as important to the people in West Virginia as it is to the people in Vermont. And this is a bit of a head scratcher uh, for many of us. Why would Joe Manchin want to deny the benefit of uh, paid family leave? Uh, to folks in West Virginia? Why would he want to deny affordable childcare? You know, in Vermont, the young family with two kids, they pay 30% of their income for childcare. This would bring it down to 7%. And one of the things Manchin talks about is the debt. Well, the reality is this is paid for. This legislation is paid for. And, you know, I was in West Virginia. I was with Joe Manchin. I went to a mine in Harrison, Virginia, went down 900 feet, four and a half miles in, spent the afternoon with the coal miners on the, on the, on the uh, uh, cutting coal inside of a, uh, on a SEMA coal. Those are hardworking folks. They're wonderful folks. And I came out the next day and I worked with him, Joe Manchin and Dave McKinley, who is my host, West Virginia member of Congress, to fight to get healthcare benefits back that had been literally stolen in my view by the coal operators. They had negotiated healthcare benefits for life for these coal miners, and you know they need them given that job. And what those companies would do um, is declare bankruptcy, they'd reorganize, but when they reorganize, they'd offload what that uh, commitment was that they made in exchange for lower wages for the miners. But we fought in Congress and we got that. We got the coal miners their benefits. So, you know, what I say to Joe Manchin is, Joe, look, this is important for the people you represent. It's important for us. And even on the climate initiatives, which, by the way, we have no time to delay on dealing with climate. Uh, there's a lot in there that would be helpful uh, to uh, West Virginia. So what the tactic is and who was right, none of us will know. But we've got to get that uh, passed, that paid for bill passed. Uh, for the benefit of folks in West Virginia and in Vermont and around the country. Well, Senator Manchin may soon be your colleague if you win your uh, your race for uh, to replace Senator Leahy. Um, in that election, you have announced that you will not be taking uh, contributions from PACs. Uh, but this sort of begs the question that you have accepted PAC money for the last 14 years. What has changed? You know, there's a question of confidence in government and corporate PACs uh, have the, they raise the question as to whether or not that is influencing your vote. And I just want, it never has, it never would, it never will. Uh, but it's an effort on my part uh, to acknowledge the questions that are raised about the corporations and PACs. I mean, the reality is there's way, way too much money in politics beyond the PACs at these super PACs where it's undisclosed amounts of money, it's unlimited amounts of money. And it's why I have been a lifelong supporter of campaign finance reform and public financing of elections. So this is an effort 
uh, to take a small step. But the reality is the challenges we face with this toxic money and politics is really doing a lot of damage. You know, David, I just want to go back. When I first got elected to Congress, it was pre-Citizens United. And I made a, uh, my, my opponent, Martha Rainville, who was the very good Republican uh, uh, candidate, we made a pledge. We had a cup of coffee and said, hey, we don't want to do negative ads. And since that was pre-Citizens United and super PACs were not legal, we controlled the money in our campaigns. That was the last time in America that there were no negative ads in a contested congressional race. We couldn't do that now. And Citizens United has got to go and got to be overturned. Would you consider giving back money that you've previously raised from corporate? No, I won't. No, at this point, no. I mean, these elections have come and gone and not a single contribution, whether it's from a PAC, the corporate PAC or any other PAC or an individual has influenced my votes. Um, Well, let's close by um, talking about that race. Why are you running for Senate? You know, it's an all hands on deck moment. I mean, this whole conversation is reminding me of what is at stake and it's our democracy. It's our democracy and it's the direction of government. But the most important thing is our democracy is imperiled and we have to preserve it. And wherever you are, whether you're young, you're middle-aged or you're older, you each of us has to make a decision about what we can do to best help preserve our democracy. And given my circumstances, given my service in Congress, the decision I made is that this is the best way I can help. And I am absolutely all in. And I respect the decisions others make as long as their decision is that it's going to be part of restoring and reviving our democracy. And secondly, the direction of our government. I mean, the Trump years were terrible in many ways, but when you have a government that actually repudiates science, that uses racism uh, as a mobilizing agenda, there's nothing good that's ever going to come out of that. And we have to have a government that acknowledges that it works for the people, that it has to face problems, not deny that they exist. An example, obviously, Exhibit A is climate change. You know, Exhibit B is income inequality, where you've got an economy that works incredibly well for folks in certain sectors, but really is tough on everybody else. So that's at stake. We've got a moment. All of us are living in this moment. And all of us are in different situations where what we can do is determined by our temperament, by our uh, personal situation. And I'm in a position where uh, I hope... I can make a big contribution to the urgency of facing these problems now by running for the U.S. Senate and serving. Well, Congressman Peter Welch, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.